in the Bible, and I want to direct your attention to the fig tree. I do want to say by way of introduction that uh, over the years, it's really been my custom, just by observation, I've noticed that many times a special occasion would come and I would say to myself, well, I'm going to have to lay aside my series. And uh, I, remember, I remember once hearing Pastor Palmer say something about pastors that just missed these special occasions and just kept right on trucking with their regular series and paid no heed or mind to them, whatever. And I've never been that way. I've always thought that these special occasions were very important to preach to for the most part. But I've also made another observation along the way. It has astonished me over the years with how many times I've noticed that what was coming with my series in the very next message lined up completely with what we wanted to do. And so I always went and looked first and prayed about it. If I thought I needed to depart, and some things are more obvious than others, I would. Didn't, didn't have any fear of doing that. Didn't have any problem with doing that. Would just set the whole thing aside. I, I would do that for Christmas every year and preach three or four weeks on Christmas and other times during the year Easter. I'd just put the whole thing to the side. But today, what I want to do is keep on with this particular series because I think the tree that's under consideration today certainly lends to some application and I hope you'll bear with me till I get the opportunity to get to the conclusion of the message to point that out. But I do want to let you know that uh, I did give some thought and, and some uh, consideration and prayer to that. Now, in our text, Matthew chapter 11, we're going, uh, Mark chapter 11, pardon me, we are going to reread two verses. And I bet um, since especially Brother Lee got you thinking about which tree that you noticed this when we were reading through here. So verse thir- uh, verse. 13 and verse 14, it says here, And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Well, so in Mark chapter 11, we need to have prayer. Then we'll have the right sequence of things here. Father, we thank you for this day you've given to us, and we do thank you for the privilege of, of observing the Lord's Day. And also, Father, uh, on this particular Lord's Day, as we had uh, several weeks ago for Mother's Day, an occasion set apart to think about fathers, and it's always appropriate to preach to these topics. The family and the home are so important. This song that we just sang is a good song. In fact, both of them are, Faith of Our Fathers and We realize, Lord, how important it is for us, above all else, to transmit our faith to our children. This is your plan. And we also realize how important it is to have good men. Lord, we look around us today and we see that our our nation is crumbling because of the lack of good men. There is so much of corruptness and so few willing to take any kind of a stand. And we just, and so so few really that have uh, principles that govern their lives. And we just pray that today, as we move through this information, as we look at this yet another tree in the Bible, we'll be able to glean some things at the end that will help us as a congregation, that will help us as a home, that will help us as fathers. Really, the application is there for all, but we need you, O blessed Holy Spirit, to give liberty, unction, freedom uh, in the proclamation of your word today and to do the applying Uh, to hearts and lives, and we'll thank you for what you do. In Jesus' holy and wonderful name, amen. Well, so remember, in this series, we have divided these trees with a message into three, or two categories, rather. So we have the towering trees. Remember, those are unique 
they're one of a kind, so to speak, in Scripture. And we have the, the, it, them occurring in the early part of Genesis for the most part, and the seed is sown for the one that's going to grow up all through Scripture. So we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't find that anywhere else. That's just there. Then we have the tree of life, which is just there but does crop up again in the Bible. So that's, But it's a, an unparalleled tree. It's a one of a kind in the Bible. You don't just go walking around Palestine today and, and find the tree of life, right? That's what I mean when I say this. And then the one whose seed is planted in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, is the tree of Calvary. And all through the Bible, we see the prophecies that get to that. And then we come to the New Testament and find about five different scripture references that go out of their way to call Calvary's cross a tree. So we often do this, and I, I, but I, I take pains just to remind you, if you didn't hear that message, I'm not just calling it the tree of Calvary because I need a tree to go there or something. to. No, that's what the Bible does, and it's by design, and it's very important. But then we have the what I'm calling the telling trees, just the trees that are a typical part of the flora, the plants of the Holy Land, you would encounter them in Bible days, and many of them you would encounter today. And in the reading of the Bible, you encounter them. But oftentimes they are invested with a message. They are used throughout the Scripture. And when we come to the fig tree today, I want to style this the fruitful tree. I, I really batted this around with a number of different names, but I think the thing that really tends to call out where I'm at with this today particularly by way of contrast. Because when we get to the one that we're, is under consideration in our text, it doesn't have any fruit. And that's going to sort of be the gist of a lot of this today, but the fruitful tree. So first of all, let's talk as we have in these other messages about what we know. Last week we were looking at the juniper tree. Four references in the Bible. That makes it easy. But when we come to the fig tree, this is one that you have a lot in the Bible. And I have actually sat down and looked at every one of these verses to be sure that, that what I have done is comprehensive and takes in all the points that need to be covered um, in a message like this. But if you take the word fig, singular, or figs, plural, and put that together, you'll find some 61 direct references so in other words, these are actual times that name is mentioned in the Bible. You may have other verses that refer to it, but not by name. Like when we were looking at the cedar tree, we found that you have so many references with cedar, but you have also the glory of Lebanon, which is kind of another figurative name that the Bible gives to the cedar tree. But 61 is a fair amount of verses or times that you encounter fig or figs in the Bible. So the tree is common. And I want to say that early in the Bible, and, and you'll see where I'm headed with this designation fruitful, the fruitful tree. Uh, early in the Bible, the fig tree is singled out as one of the symbols of the prosperity and blessing of God that was upon the land to which the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and going, the land of promise. Well, don't we know that when God promises us something, it's always his best. It's only when we deviate and figure we have a different plan. So we're going to look at some verses, certainly not all 61. But I'd like to ask you to go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter uh, 8. I want to show you this because this is kind of a tone setter. 
And uh, it's important to look at some of these, but we'll, we'll sort of work forward as it were. It's not going to be that much trouble to look at the verses. You can keep your place marked in Mark 11 because we will be coming back. That's really our key text that we're working back towards, but kind of doing a little background work. So Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now watch this. Moses is talking about what God had to say about the land he was giving his people. So it says in verse number 7, For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a what kind of land? Good land. See, if you let God give you what it is he has for you, it will be good. And so the Lord brings you into a good land, he says. A land. Now, what did that mean? So it, in this particular case, when he spoke of the characteristics that they would need to flourish as we think of life, he promised them an abundance. And look, it says brooks of water, of fountains, depths that spring out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines, and there it is, fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive, and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. And I kind of think, really, that phrase, without scarceness, and then what it says next, thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. Well, boy, you've got a lot of stuff covered here, all the way from water to fruit-bearing trees to uh, metals that they would need. And God is promising them a good place. And as he thinks about the food part of it and the prosperity and blessing that he was bringing them into a good land, he mentions the fig tree as one of the examples. Now, let's drop back because it's going to get a little bit more specific. We'll drop back one book to the book of Numbers and go to chapter 13. Because now it's going to narrow down a little bit. Remember, 12 spies are sent into the land. And they're going to go kind of spy this place out and determine how's the best military strategy as the children of Israel are approaching the land to go into it. And they've just come out of Egypt. And in Numbers chapter 13, notice verse 23. So when they came back, they brought tokens of the land's blessing and prosperity. It says in verse 23, And they came unto the brook Eshkol, and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bear it between two upon a staff. Boy, that must have been a real cluster of grapes, right? They bore it between two on a staff. And then it says, And they brought some of the pomegranates and of the figs. So now it's narrowed down to three. When they came back with some of these tokens of the fruitfulness and blessing of the land, they had grapes, they had pomegranates, and they had figs. Well, as you know, I mean, we enjoy figs today, right? All the way from when we were little kids and we got Fig Newtons, and I guess you can still get Fig Newtons, to you get dried frigs, figs, and they're sweet, aren't they? And you can dry them, of course, and that's important because we, we recognize and realize that, that they did that in Bible times, too. They didn't just have figs when they were ripe. They had figs that they were able to keep aside. And so it's sweet fruit, very sweet fruit, enjoyable fruit, was a staple in Israel. And it's interesting to know that the trees produced two crops a year and sometimes three. I keep thinking to myself, how many batches do groundhogs have? One or two? Maybe some of you know, but it seems to me like they have more than one. At least I see them all over the place. It seems to me like the rabbits do more than one, too. And you know, so there are some things that are more prolific. And it's interesting when you think about the fig tree that you could actually have what you might call your, your early figs 
which really are late winter. So you would have maybe that in March. But your key fig season is in May or June, and then you could actually have a late summer uh, produce of figs as well. So you can see how this tree is, I call it a staple. It really was because uh, they would depend upon that as a key source of food and sustenance for uh, the people there. Now here's something else, and this is, I think, really uh, intriguing. You've heard me talk about this before. I'm sure you've heard other pastors uh, who have spoken to you talk about this, but there is something in the Bible that's very intriguing, and it's called the law of first reference. So many times when you find your first reference to something in the Bible, it has a way of kind of tone setting. In other words, sometimes latent within that reference are the germs of, that's a bad word right now, isn't it? But anyway, there are the seeds, let's say that. There are the seeds of things that are going to grow through Scripture, and you have just the hint of it there. Well, here's the Here's the fact. Of the trees in the Garden of Eden, how many trees were in the Garden of Eden? That's a trick question. We don't know. But there was undoubtedly quite a few. But you only have the fig tree of the ones that we're familiar with mentioned. You have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have the tree of life. The only other tree to actually be called out as existing in the Garden of Eden is the fig tree. Let's go to the verse. Genesis chapter 3. Pretty early in the Bible, right? Right where you find the Garden of Eden and right where you find the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you find this reference. Now, it's a little after the fact, but it's during. So, it's kind of after the fact, and you know, but it's also during. You'll see what I mean. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, but we're going to read verse 6 to get a little flavor of the context. So we're in the midst of the temptation, and it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Now this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil here. And did give unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Well, you know, if I were going to preach a standalone message on the text that we're using today in Mark chapter 11, I think I would be tempted to title that message after a little phrase that we find in verse number 13, and that is this, nothing but leaves. When Jesus, isn't that an interesting parallel when you think about the law of first reference? Nothing about the fruit of the fig tree is mentioned, just the leaves. The absence of fruit. And then when you come over to this crowning story, so to speak, of how the fig tree was used in some of the teaching of Jesus. We don't have any fruit, just leaves. So I'm going to leave that hanging for a while, and that's uh, important. Now, the fact that what followed all of this in Genesis 3-7 was a curse, was it not? The curse came upon as a result of man's disobedience and sin, which he tried to cover vainly with those leaves. 
Well, it's interesting in our text in Mark chapter 11, although the word is not used on the day when the words are uttered, Peter later, in verse number 21, the next day, Mark 11, 21, Peter calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou, what? Cursest, is withered away. That to me is stunning, really, because the leaves, but no fruit in that first reference, followed by a curse, and the leaves, but no fruit, followed by a curse in Mark chapter 11. And we're going to try to put that together. So let's transition to what we learn and look at some lessons from this. Um, Again, I, I say I went back and forth with trying to figure out the descriptive word I wanted to use here. I thought a little bit about the tree of lessons. And one of the reasons that I thought about that description is because Unlike the juniper tree and some of the others where you find most of the material in the Old Testament that gives us either the story or the background, most of the usage, you have background material in the Old Testament, but not so much stories. I mean, you have references like when Abigail brought the things to David's hungry men. She brought, you know, figs and this type of thing. But it, it's, it's, a, it's only an incidental detail in the story. It's really not the heart of the story like the juniper tree was with Elijah last week. Where this thing really comes out is in the New Testament, and it comes out in the teaching of Christ. And uh, so you have several different lessons that Jesus uses it for, but there is one that's really the standout one, but I want to summarize. So there are two parables. We're going to look at a few more verses. Jesus actually uses the fig tree about four different times, four separate times, or four distinct times. You may have more references in the Bible because sometimes you have a parallel reference or a parallel occurrence of the same teaching. But two of these four times are parables. Let's look at Matthew 24. You know, too far to go from your fingers were still in Mark 11. Let's go to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 32. He says, now learn a parable of the fig tree. So on two occasions, it's called a parable that he uses the fig tree as a centerpiece in. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When its branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. All right, so what's the whole context here? It's the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is talking about his second coming. He's talking about his return to the earth, uh, about which there are signs. And he says, when you see the fig tree putting forth its leaves, well, it's springtime, right? So you know that summer is going to follow at a not-too-distant time. And, and that's the way it's used here. He uses it as an object in his teaching to point out the signs and the nearness of the return of Christ when you see those things. Okay, we're going to leave that alone. That's the first of the parables. Let's go to Luke 13. And this, too, is called a parable. This gets a little closer to where we are in Mark 11. Luke 13, 6. He spoke also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found what? None. So it's the absence of fruit which is expected and for which the tree is known, which is why I call it the fruitful tree. And it says, Then said he unto the dresser of the vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? Well, there's another point about the fig tree that's important. First of all, the fig tree is not an ornamental tree. You don't plant a fig tree to make a hedge. You don't plant a fig tree because 
of beautiful flowers. You plant a fig tree for figs, right? It's the whole purpose why you have a fig tree. It's like apple trees. I mean, you know, some years they're, they're loaded with gorgeous blossoms, but you don't really plant them for that reason. You plant them for the apples. You plant a fig tree, you need it three years to get fruit. Nothing is said about how long this tree's been there. Nothing is said about how old this tree is, but we are told that three years in a row he came and didn't find any. So, in other words, every opportunity had been given to this fig tree to serve its purpose, to bear fruit. And it failed. It did not bring forth the expected fruit. So in the next verse, look what it says. The vine dresser answers, verse 8, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it, fertilize it, we would say. And if it bear fruit, well, and if not, then thou shalt cut it down. What's the point? Well, the point was he pleaded for a little more grace, a little more mercy, but realized that if it did not produce fruit, that judgment was inevitable. That's what's going on here, and that's what's going on in Mark 11, and we're going we're gonna to begin to loop this all together. I want to look at two more things because we're kind of narrowing in, funneling down. We're seeing fruitfulness or the lack of fruit. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the third of four occasions that Jesus used something to do with figs and fruit. So several verses here we could read, but let's look at verse 16. Well, again, let's read 15 for the context. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their what? Fruits. So there's fruit. Then he says this, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, every, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree bringeth forth, that bringeth not forth good fruit is what? Hewn down, like we saw in Luke 16, and cast into the fire and then the point of all of this exercise, verse 20, wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. So it is true, is it not, beloved? We don't have the capability, as God the Holy Spirit does, to see in the heart. We're fruit inspectors. We can look at the life. And the presence of fruit tells us one thing. The absence of fruit tells us something else. Now we're at Mark 11. Got all the relevant information, I think. We want to come back to the place at hand and see if we can just hone in a little bit more, if we can just understand the passage a little bit more, and then make our key application. So let's zero in on this because this is really the most well known incident and time that this comes up. So Jesus, it says in verse number 13, what's the whole point? Seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves. That's the point. The leaves make a profession. They advertise something which in fact proves not to be true. And the reason for this is because in the life of the fig tree, this late winter or early, if you're thinking spring or thinking in terms of two or three crops, this early crop of figs, they would be smaller buds, smaller examples of the fruit, um, not 
not what you would get when you got to actually summer figs, but still edible. And so they were commonly used, especially by poorer people, as, as, a, as a source of food. But they come out first. This is in March, which, if you think about this, this is the Passover time, so we're right on the right time frame here for what's going on. This is, the, this is right up at the time of the Lord's uh, passion. And they come out first, and then they are followed in April by lush foliage. The leaves follow. And I, I think I've told you before, I have a tree in my yard like that. I have that saucer magnolia, and the flowers come out, and they're beautiful. Then the leaves follow. And later on, what happens is these little small buds, these smaller examples of the fruit, they're, they're pushed off. They fall off if they're not utilized in some other way. The, the foliage comes out, and then you have in May or June the, the first key crop of full-fledged normal figs like what we're thinking about. The point in the story here is, is that by seeing the leaves, Jesus had every reason to believe. Now, he's afar off, it says. Don't miss that detail. Because if you're looking at a, an apple tree now from a distance, you'll readily see it has leaves. You might not readily see any fruit, right? Because it's maybe about like that right now. Uh, one of the trees in our yard, they, it, there's, it's, I think it's a crab apple, really, but they're about the size of a quarter right now, maybe a little smaller. Made me so upset the other day. I saw a squirrel come up in that tree and out there grabbing those things. I'm like, hey, idiot, what's he doing? They're not even tasty yet. But I guess I don't have the taste buds of a squirrel. I don't get it, and I don't like it. But there's, you know, I can't be on guard 24 hours a day either. It's another problem. Why you don't ever get anything. But that's what is going on. Jesus has every expectation because the tree advertises that the figs should be there, these late winter figs. He gets there, and... The Bible tells us he doesn't find anything but leaves only and then confirms our time frame and our analysis of this by telling us because the time of figs was not yet. In other words, talking about May or June when you would have the first full-fledged crop of fruits. It wasn't that time yet. What he was looking for were those late winter figs that he, he could have found and gotten some, something to keep the... Um, you know, used to have a fellow that helped us on with our horses, he he would say, make hunger behave yourself. That's kind of short for make hunger behave itself. Your stomach's growling, a little something there. That's what he was looking for, and it was disappointing. Why was it disappointing? It was disappointing because leaves don't do you much good. You can't chew on them. Leaves are not why you plant a fig tree. And if you see one in the wild or along the way like this, you have every right to hope that you can get a couple there, and just like the disciples sort of going through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and they were allowed to take some and rub the grain together and do, have a little something to stave off the hunger. And so it was us of this fig tree then, Jesus saw something here. This, this is not an outburst of anger. There are, there are people who have read this before and tried to intimate that, you know, this, is, this just shows you. Um, you know, Jesus really wasn't divine here. He just lost his cool and cursed this fig tree. That's, folks, that's not at all what's going on. But okay. 
that chipmunk was trying to come in. <laughs> we don't allow them, right? That'll cause a big uproar. He, I took a look at him. He went. But it, Jesus found in this a fitting picture of a fig tree of Israel because he had come to the nation of Israel and all the leaves were there. All the outward forms, all the ritual, all the religion, the temple, the sacrifice, all the profession, all the buildings, all the outward trappings. But by and large, what? He came unto his own and his own received him not. They rejected him. And even in our text, which is why I think Mark sets this up the way he does, you have there, right there given to you in plain, bold relief the reaction of the scribes and Pharisees. Look in verse 18. When they saw what he did in cleansing of the temple. Now, was he within his rights? He certainly was because he even quoted Old Testament scripture. I mean, Jesus was like John the Baptist. He was in the spirit of an Old Testament prophet who thundered forth against the sin and corruption of the day. This has always been the spirit of the prophets. This is what it should be still. That it's the job of the preacher to call out and deal with the issues of the day. Too many don't want to do that. But this is what's going on. And the reaction of these religious leaders, just as it was when they heard that Christ would be born, they weren't happy. What does it say? When we read the Christmas story and they heard these things, all Jerusalem was troubled. They were upset. They were worried. They didn't want something to come and kind of upset the, the situation that they had going. Verse 18 says, The scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. The, the people responded because they sensed in the preaching of Jesus something that was different, something besides just all this mamby-pamby, milk-toast, mumbo-jumbo that people hear Sunday after Sunday. He was hearing, they were hearing from him good Bible preaching, and there's something about that that people will respond to. One way or another, they respond. Get mad or glad, but they respond. But the religious leaders, the nation's leadership, the very ones who should have been the tone setters, the very ones who should have followed, the ones who should have led the nation in repentance. When John's baptism, I ask you, what happened at John's baptism? Jesus saw some of the Sadducees come to the baptism and the Pharisees, and he called them, you know, he, bring forth fruits, therefore. There's our thing, right? Fruits. Bring, therefore, fruits. Meet for repentance. He called them a generation of vipers because they were hypocrites. They had all the leaves, all the trappings. There's, you know, there's an interesting story in the life of one of the well-known ships that I want to just quickly pass along to you. But, you know, everybody's familiar with the Titanic, but some of you might also be familiar in name, at least, with the uh, Queen Mary. And the Queen Mary actually was way beyond what the Titanic was because uh, the, the Queen Mary has actually been regarded as the most awe-inspiring ocean vessel in the world. Um, of course, you know, that's before Carnival Cruise and all that, but I sort of suspect that the Queen Mary might have even had that beat. But 1,019 feet long, how's that? That's as big as an aircraft carrier. 1,019 feet long, over 80,000 tons displacement. That's twice the tonnage of the Titanic. Um, the Queen Mary had 12 decks and carried 1,957 passengers with a crew of 1,174. Of course, 
She was commissioned in 1936, but the war shortly followed. And so during the war years, the Queen Mary saw service as a troop transport vessel, transporting back and forth troops. More than three quarters of a million troops rode the Queen Mary. And of course, after the war, she resumed transatlantic crossings for which she was built. Um, do you know that the Queen Mary transited the Atlantic a thousand and one times? That's a lot of miles. And then in 1967, she was retired and bought by a group in Long Beach, California. If you were to, were to, I mean, because it was bought for this, so if you were to approach that ship and look, I mean, it was just you would, you would be dazzled with the, the luster and the gleam and the opulence and the, and the workmanship of that, that particular vessel. Uh, but there was something rather interesting. When they got that, the Queen Mary there, got her docked, and the workmen were going over things and doing everything to have everything ready, they decided that they would uh, dismantle the funnels. The Queen Mary had three huge funnels, smokestacks in other words, and they were built of steel over an inch thick. But when the workmen put the cranes and so forth there to take them, set them on the deck so that they could work on them, they crumbled. And it was because of the fact that over all of those years and all of that fuel, heat, and moisture going up through those funnels, that inch-thick steel, even though over the years it had been covered with 30 coats of paint, it was nothing but a hollow shell. You would approach it and you would think, wow. But when they got the thing off and dismantled it, it crumbled. You would have looked at the temple of Jesus' day, Herod's temple, you would have looked at the religious establishment. If you didn't know any better, you'd go to the Vatican today and look at all of that, and you would think, wow, it's hollow. It's filled with dead men's bones and corruption. It's a shell. All the outward trappings and no inner reality. And this is what Jesus saw in the nation of Israel. So as in the garden, it was leaves only, and the leaves were used to cover up something. All that outward ex and external religion, it covered up something. And it covered up the fact that even though there was outward conformity, there was no inner reality. And Brother Lee mentioned the fact that on Wednesday night I talked about Psalm 51. You know, one of the great lessons that David puts forth in there when he says in verse 16, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, else would I give it thee. He was fully capable. What he, when he had sinned, that wasn't so much what God was looking for as external response. And this is so much what people think today, right? They think that some external response, you know, I, I need to join the church or I need to do more good works or something of this nature. And those are all good things, but not if you don't have the inner reality, not if something hasn't happened in the heart. So he goes on in verse 17 and he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. In other words, without real repentance and conversion, all this religion stuff just makes men clever devils. It doesn't get you to heaven. Make, let there be absolute clarity on that point. 
And so it's just like it is in Luke chapter 13. There's a lack of genuine repentance. Let's go back there for just a moment. We're almost done, but I want to show you the context. It's a parable, but most of the time parables were called forth for a particular reason. You're going to see now how this just really fits. So the parable starts in verse 6. Let's back up to 13.1 and read the context. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? So, right, we tend to think of some great calamity as betokening extra wickedness. And so it, it called forth an extra measure of God's judgment. And Jesus says, no, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Then he tells the parable about the fig tree that has no fruit. What brought this forth? The fact that he detected this attitude that they were fine. But there had never really been any genuine repentance and conversion in the heart and life. No true religion, just man's religion. So we have to ask ourselves, and, and I want to just bring it this way for Father's Day. You know, you can make this application across the board to any situation, whether it's a church, whether it's a nation, whether it's a home, but I'll tell you something about the home. If there's a place that we need real stuff, more desperately than any other place, it's in the home. Because I'll tell you something, brothers and sisters, if you have it in the home, you'll have it in the church. And if you don't have it in the home, then what you get is fake stuff. People putting on airs. People who have a Sunday go-to-meeting reputation, but... Not so much of what's here. And that begins to really show up. I love the way D.L. Moody explained repentance. He said this, he said, Man is born with his back towards God. When he truly repents, he turns right around and faces God. Then he went on to say about repentance. Repentance is a change of mind. You turn around. Repentance is the tear in the eye of faith. I like it. I mean, tears in and of themselves don't necessarily prove anything, but they tend to be an indication that people are truly affected, that there's a genuineness. It needs to go further, but they tend to be an outward indication that that's true. But I would say this about the home. You know, the thing of it is, you're just kidding yourself if you think you can come to church and have everybody else fooled. You may accomplish that, but you won't fool anybody at home because they know you there. You see, especially our children. They've been around us. They see us. They know what we do when we get angry. They know what we do whether we have our quiet time with God. They know whether or not when we come to church or teach a Sunday school lesson or something else that it's one image we present to people, but it's leaves. Nothing but leaves. There's a story about a Chinese boy that decided he wanted to learn about jade, which, of course, is a, is a valuable commodity. So the boy 
wisely thought that he would go to one of the old masters to learn about jade. He knew the man knew a lot about it, so he went to the man, explained he wanted to know about the precious stone. The man invited him in, and he put him on a seat, and he said, give me your hand. And the boy put his hand out, and the old teacher put in his hand a piece of jade, closed his hand around it. The boy withdrew his hand. Then the man just started talking. For an hour he talked. He talked about philosophy. He talked about men. He talked about women. He talked about the sun. He talked about almost everything under the sun, it seemed to the boy. And after an hour, he took the stone back and sent the boy home. And this procedure was repeated for several weeks. And the boy had a great reverence for the teacher, so he was reluctant, particularly in that culture, you, you did not question He was reluctant to say anything about it, but he kept wondering, when's he going to get around to telling me about the jade? After this went on for a couple of weeks, and finally one day he walked in, the man said, put your hand out. He put in his hand, the boy immediately said, that's not jade. Seemed like the method was to get to the place where you could recognize the real thing and distinguish it from what was not. Sometimes people around us can keep us from recognizing the real thing, although Jesus said sooner or later it tends to show because ye shall know them by their fruits. But one thing is certain, ladies and gentlemen, we will all one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. When God says, what is that in your hand? God will know what's in our hand, whether it's worthless or whether it's jade. He will know if we have spent our lives, our Christian lives, in the pursuit of wood, hay, and stubble, things that are worthless, or whether or not we have truly valued the values of Christianity and of Christ and have lived for those things, the gold, the silver, and the precious stone. God will know, even though people don't see, God will know. What do you have in your hand? Is it something that's valuable? Is it something that's real? Is it something that's genuine? Or is it something less? Nothing but leaves. I want to encourage myself. I want to encourage every believer here. Father's Day. Think of the home. Think of the church. Think of America. Think how important it is that you and I be genuine. That what we have be something more than just leaves. Lord, we thank you for giving us these moments to look into the Bible. We thank you that ever practical the Bible shines the searchlight wherever you intend it to be or go. That's all we want here today. Lord, however you have spoken to us, however you have worked in our lives, whatever you may be saying, I pray, Lord, that if we can sense that there's not genuineness, if we can sense that we need to be something better and more at home. If we can sense that there's absolutely no genuineness, we've never really repented and trusted Christ as Savior, then I pray, Lord, that the Spirit of God will keep working and you will bring to completion and fruition that which you have started in this service today. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Let me just ask, is there anyone here today who would say, hey, would you just include me in the closing prayer? I'm not going to call your name. I won't even reference where you are in the building, but it might be helpful if to yourself and to God you put yourself on a little more notice that there's some business needs to be transacted. I wonder if you'd just slip your hand up. Anybody here today's preachers, I'm burdened as a result of what I heard here today. I'm not sure I've got more than leaves going on here. In one sense or the other, Pray for me. 
Would you slip your hand up? Anyone like that here today? Gracious God in heaven, as we have said, you see our hearts, you know, so we just leave it with you and thank you for the privilege of being here and, and also to hear or proclaim your word. I pray that for each of us there will be a blessing. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.